my name is Harrison, uh, pastor here at Hope Chapel. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you. Good to see everybody back from uh, holidays and stuff. Um, so uh, after a significant year last year in our history at Hope Chapel, um, which involved, on the one hand, for us, uh, loss and grief, um, and also, on the other, a, a shepherding of Jesus uh, very tangibly and, and clarity surrounding our, our call together and renewal. Um, after that year, the elders and the staff decided, we, uh, we as a church usually have a goal for the year, kind of a theme, and we decided the goal for this year, uh, we wanted to be remembering the church. Uh, we have a slide up here, Grant, if you want to throw that thing up, um, remembering the church. This is a great theme because it's a pun, uh, so uh, double meaning. So first, um, the image of the human body uh, the Bible uses to say that we are members of Jesus and members of one, one another. So the human body has various parts attached to it, um, and it, that describes our stake that we have in Jesus and the stake we have in, in one another. We are members of the body of Christ. And uh, more than that, we, um, we see in Scripture that this body is supposed to grow up to the fullness and stature of one day being the same height as Jesus himself. And this year, we want to focus on remembering or recollecting uh, that truth, living out that truth, what it means to have a stake in Jesus and in one another. Um, and also, uh, not just official membership or uh, the local church, but also members of the universal church, uh, the full elect in Jesus that spans throughout the world now, all across the world, and also throughout um, all time. What does it mean for us to be a member of that church? So we decided this theme because um, we also thought, you know, when hard things happen in the church, uh, it's typical. Um, and we also know that for a lot of you guys, for a lot of us on staff too, that hard things have happened in the church in our past, not, not just here at Hope Chapel, but also in other churches that it can be typical to want to um, move apart from each other, to dismember from the church, to let go of the stake that we have in one another and the stake that we have in Jesus and this year, we wanted to intentionally do just the opposite. Um, we wanted to go deeper into Jesus and deeper into one another intentionally, um, to go deeper with clarity into our true purpose of our life together as the body of Christ. So that's the exciting unveiling of our theme uh, for this year. There you go. Um, and uh, towards that end, we uh, decided to first go through the book of Romans. Uh, it's a book that we've actually never done uh, together here at Hope Chapel. Um, it lays out very clearly the foundations of the stake that we have in Jesus and the stake that we have in one another and in the church around the world and throughout all time. So we're going to break Romans into four different sections. Um, uh, you can go to the next slide, uh, Grant. So um, the, the first section uh, that we're going to do here is, these are theological terms that we want um, you guys to know well, is justification, which is a question of how are we made right with God, and also implied in that, how are we made right with one another, and that's first four chapters of Romans, and then sanctification, which is how are we changed uh, to be like God, um, how has the church changed over time, uh, chapters five through eight, integration, um, how do we interact with those on the outside of our community, how do we incorporate them into our community, chapters nine through 11, and lastly, application, how do we live together in light of all these things that God has done to found our community. So we're actually going to do Romans till the end of the summer. Uh, so half a chapter a week goes about till the end of the summer. But we'll have four different sections on um, kind of these really deep foundational truths of our faith. 
And a fun addition that we decided to do is each sermon, we're going to have a church history window for you. Um, so a window into church history that shows what's going on in the text that can help give you a sense of the historical community that we're also a part of um, as the church. So get excited about all those things. We're excited. Um, and if you're not now, then maybe you will be soon. Uh, we'll see. Um, so uh, Romans is a letter. And so for our structure for this intro sermon this morning, imagine that when you get back from church, you go to your mailbox of your house, and in there you find a letter. Uh, as you pull it out, you examine it, and you open it, and you're going to notice three things regarding this letter that you're getting today. Uh, first is the authority of the letter. So in, in the word authority is author. Who is sending you this? Actually, Grant, Grant, you can go to the next. We're trying to use more slides this year, guys, also, so check it out. We got, we heard you, you wanted slides, you got slides, all right? So the authority of the letter, uh, who is sending you this letter? Um, what authority does the words of the letter hold in your life? Um, what does it mean to you? Uh, the occasion of the letter, why did they send this letter? What precipitated it being written and showing up in your mailbox? And then lastly, the message of the letter, uh, what is this letter about? Um, what are they saying to you exactly? So this mailbox scenario is not, really a fictional scenario that I'm describing because in God's providence, as actually we'll see in Romans, uh, he has this letter for you today. Uh, his word is living and active and it's delivered to you at this very point in your life intentionally. And we're going to think about why he might do that today. And before we dive into all this, uh, let me pray for us. Jesus, would you um, be with us this morning as we look at these pivotal, uh, famous first words in Romans uh, that lay out the theme of this book. Um, help us, Lord, to come uh, to it with open hearts and fresh eyes um, for this, 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 this truth, this, this news to hit us fully um, the way you want it to, Lord. Uh, use your spirit to do so. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first is the authority of the letter. Um, who is sending this to you, and what authority do they hold? So look at verse 1. You can follow along in all this in your worship guide. Verse 1 here. Um, so Paul, uh, a servant, also the word literally means slave, a slave of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then uh, scroll down to verse 5 through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, asking the question, who's sending this to you? Uh, on the surface, it would appear that you're mainly receiving a letter from a guy named Paul. Uh, in which case, this letter would be about the same as most other letters you might get. Some regular person and their words, perhaps Paul's thoughts on life, uh, this guy's from the first century, kind of cool. Um, but if you remember back to our Acts series, we went through Acts, if you were with us last year, there's a guy, Saul of Tarsus. Uh, here, his name's Paul. Jesus doesn't change Saul's name to Paul. It's actually Saul is his Hebrew name, and Paul is his Greek name. Um, just a thing that they had back in the day. Um, Paul was a religious Pharisee who persecuted the church heavily, was confronted by Jesus, blinded, born again by the Spirit, called and then set apart to be an official apostle of Jesus to the Gentiles, to serve alongside the other 12 apostles who used to be disciples minus Judas. And so this means 
this letter is not just from a guy named Paul. It's from a guy named Paul, the apostle of Jesus. This is important because apostle in Greek means sent one, someone who was sent. It refers to a messenger or an envoy or a delegate uh, called specifically to deliver the message or the words of another person, uh, to speak on behalf of another person. This has big implications for the letter in your mailbox. Uh, The apostles and Paul here were not called to give you their own words. Uh, They were called to give you the words of the one who sent them, specifically Jesus' words. And uh, I want to look at for a second how Jesus speaks of the role of his apostles. So this is uh, Matthew 10, 19. He's talking to his disciples. He says, don't be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say. He's talking about the future when they're going to be apostles. He says, "Uh, for you are to say, what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So he's saying it's not your words that are going to come out. It's going to be the Holy Spirit's words. And he elaborates a little more on what those words are. John 16, 13. uh, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, my apostles, in all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but he will take what is mine, Jesus' words, and he will declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So according to Jesus, the system is the apostles speak, the Holy Spirit, as they do so, are giving them Jesus' very words. And then John 14, he, he talks about it again. The Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all I've told you. And then Luke 21, he goes even further and says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So Jesus sees the apostles' words as the Holy Spirit uh, speaking his actual words through them. I will give you a mouth that no one can withstand or contradict. So this means uh, to Jesus, the apostles' words were to carry the same authority and power and truth that Jesus' words have. They are his mouthpieces. Now this is also how the apostles understood what they were doing. Uh, as carrying the words of Jesus and of God, uh, which is why they call their writings scriptures. So Peter calls Paul's writings, like Romans here, uh, scriptures in 2 Peter 3.16. And Peter says scriptures like uh, Paul's, like this one, are words, the words of God more fully confirmed even than the audible voice of God that Peter heard on the Mount of Transfiguration. Scriptures are more sure than you hearing God's audible voice. He continues, he says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, meaning the apostles aren't giving you just their thoughts about things. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's uh, 1 Peter 1, 19-21. So what Peter is saying is just exactly the same thing Jesus said. Uh, The apostles speak from God himself through the Spirit, and this makes the words of scripture more sure than us hearing an audible voice of God. It's a pretty amazing gift to have a whole book of that. Paul agrees with this. Uh, He calls all scriptures as breathed out by God, able to make us complete in 2 Timothy 3. Uh, So the apostles viewed their words the same way Jesus did, as speaking his words. And then your first uh, early church history window, um, this was also how the early church viewed the apostles' words. So we have a lot of letters from a guy named Ignatius of Antioch. He was an elder slash bishop in the first century, early second century. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. And he wrote letters to the same Roman church 
uh, on his way to be martyred, and he asks them at one point to pray for him. And when he asks them for that, he pauses to distinguish, and he goes, I don't speak to you like Peter or Paul. I do not issue commandments to you. They were apostles. I'm just a condemned man. What Ignatius does is distinguishes himself and his role from Paul and his role. He said, he gives you the words of God, the commandments of God. I don't do that. I'm just asking you to pray for me. So given all this, to view this letter in your mailbox as mainly from Paul, on Paul's authority, would be to misunderstand how Paul views his own letter, how Jesus views Paul's letter, and how everyone in the early church viewed Paul's letter. Uh, to say this letter is only from Paul would be like if I called you on your phone and told you uh, church is at, I was supposed to have my phone in my pocket, I don't have it. Um, imagine I got a, a nice prop here, a phone. Uh, I called you on your phone uh, and I say church changed to 1015 today instead of 1030, just so you know, come at 1015. And you get, you get off the phone and, and your wife, your husband asks, hey, what's the call about? And you're like, well, my phone told me that church is at 1015 instead of 1030. How did it know that? I'm not sure. Can we trust it? Who knows? If only there was a way that I could hear from someone on staff to tell us if church has changed. We would say, there is a way. Uh, Actually, someone on staff told you through your phone. And to Jesus, Paul is merely your phone. The letter in your mailbox is fully intended to be the letter from Jesus himself via a phone named Paul. This is crucial uh, for your life because the contents of this letter, as we're about to see this year, are the most detailed and fullest expression of the gospel in the New Testament. These words most clearly tell us who Jesus is, how he can make you right with God, how he can change you, how he can give you a sure hope of salvation and of heaven. And we all badly need these things to be true from a real authority that cannot be shaken. We don't need Paul's thoughts on these things. And the good news is that's not what is being offered to us. In front of you is Jesus' letter on those things, and Paul is just a mailman. So I wanted to say all this partly because it's become popular now to get to some countercultural, meaning uh, for us counter 21st century Western cultural sections of Romans or the New Testament or a letter from the Apostle Paul. And we get to those sections, we don't love them, And so we delineate, well, this part can't really be from Jesus. It can't be from God speaking here. So this must just be this guy, Paul, his first century outdated ideas, personal issues. So I want to hold to Jesus over here, um, but I don't want to hold to Paul over here. And um, if this is you coming in today, it's it's a lot of us, um, I want to ask you to consider for this series on Romans, when we get to those hard cultural sections, uh, for instance, Next week, uh, we have uh, a verse that mentions sexuality, talks about sexuality some. We're going to talk about the full doctrine of sin after that. Uh, when we get to sections on Paul, uh, on male and female roles in the church and family, or our posture towards the government, or election, uh, when we wrestle with all of these different sections together, um, I want to ask us to consider what if these are the very words of Jesus to us in the upcoming weeks? What if we're not wrestling with a guy named Paul, but we're wrestling with a guy named Jesus? I wonder how that would change the wrestling experience for you. 
And I ask that because Jesus is clear that this is what's truly happening for us in the whole New Testament. And it's also, like I said, what I think we need the most to be true desperately because it means also when we get to the sections on us being justified from our vile sin and saved from hell and damnation on the basis of Jesus' work alone, received only by our faith alone, that nothing can separate us from God and his love as a result of that, that we're getting that from Jesus' mouth too, on his authority. You don't want those things on Paul's authority. They're not going to stand for you when your life is under the fire. What we need is verse 7 here to be true. Paul says, grace and peace from who? From Paul? No. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how an apostle speaks to us. From God and from Jesus. And that's what the rest of the letter is going to do and what Jesus wants to offer you. I also want to mention with this that underlying all this is postmodern people uh, we've learned the hard way that it's uh, normal, sinful people are not objective. We all have our biases, our blind spots, our privileges, our woundings, hidden sins. And so it's risky to fully trust any sinful person or institution. And when we talk about doctrine of sin, Romans is going to affirm a lot of that, actually. Um, but this letter to you, uh, Jesus intentionally wants to offer you something different than that. Through his sent one, Bearing his words, he wants to offer you, in the midst of a fallen world, a sure place, an airtight place, a place that you can find uh, refuge from the confusion, where you can let down your guard, lay open your heart and soul, and receive unshakable news, knowing that the grass withers and flowers fade out there, but his words to you are going to stand. Jesus wants you to be able to rest assured and to sleep peacefully in this truth. Jesus wants a place for that, uh, like that for you, and that's why he created this whole apostolic system in the first place. So you can have a space for that in your life. So I want to encourage us all to just consider as we go into Romans, opening our hearts freshly to the content of this letter. And if we do, uh, I promise you that we're going to receive the best news you ever heard in your life. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, on top of that, we'll receive more beautiful and true and surprising ways of viewing the hard cultural topics as God himself views them. Now, if uh, you want to think more about the nature of God's word and its authority, we, we did a seminar last year on this very topic, and we recorded it. And so we're going to send it out with our church email this week. If you didn't get a chance to, to view that, you want to um, dive more into that, I understand I did not answer all of your questions regarding Scripture and its authority and what it is. Um, but this seminar would do more of that, uh, so we're going to send it out this week. So that's uh, the author and the authority of the letter that you're receiving today by God's providence. It's a letter from Jesus via the Holy Spirit, via Paul, that's showing up in your mailbox. Uh, so now the second thing is the occasion of this letter, a uh, much shorter point here. Um, why did Jesus, via Paul, uh, send it? Uh, Grant, you can leave out those points up there. That's probably a good one to just kind of stick up there. Um, thanks, man. Um, okay, so uh, look at verse 8 here. Uh, Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, 
asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So uh, the Apostle Paul has heard of this Roman church, has been praying for it. And uh, likely this Roman church receiving this letter was planted by Jews who had been present at Peter's sermon at the Pentecost in Jerusalem in the temple. Uh, If you guys remember from the Acts series, uh, after the resurrected Jesus ascended to heaven, the disciples of Jesus were filled with the Spirit, tongues of fire appeared above their heads, Peter delivers a sermon, everyone hears in their own uh, language, and many Jews from Rome were there, it says. And 3,000 people became followers of Jesus in this moment. And then presumably, those people went back to Rome and started a church there. And then when we hear uh, a little later from the Roman historian Suetonius, a bunch of the Jews were expelled from the city of Rome due to the instigation of Crestus, uh, which was a Greek attempt at saying Christ. Uh, So this church was proclaiming the gospel in such a way that they were kicked out of the city. Um, And at that time, uh, Gentiles who were left there as part of the church were um, kind of took over the church as we understand from history. So then, by the time Paul's writing, actually, it's a new day. Those Jews had returned, but now we're in the minority. And so we have a mixture of a Jew and Gentile church, predominantly Gentile, um, and they're learning, remembering uh, theme. They're remembering what it means to have a stake in Jesus and one another, which is our theme uh, for this year and a major theme of Romans. So uh, Paul's writing to them. He's praying for them. He's come, he wants to come see them. Uh, Verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So Paul wants to help this Roman church, has been equipped by God to do so. Uh, Verse 12, that is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So this harvest he's talking about is the metaphorical harvest, likely uh, fruit of the Spirit, reborn people of the Spirit, benefits of salvation, a new community, um, lots of things he could be referring to. Verse 14, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So by saying Paul's under obligation, he's referring to him being an apostle, a sent one to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. So so the occasion overall appears to be uh, that Paul is just doing his duty as an apostle. He wants to reach this Roman church to impart a spiritual gift, reap a harvest among a church that is needing to learn how to live together um, in Jesus. Now this is uh, really important. We're going to keep coming back to this occasion because um, make no mistake, this is a letter from uh, for you from Jesus, but it's also a letter that's not addressed to you. It's addressed to the Roman church in the first century. And so for us to understand Jesus' words to us fully, we must first understand what they meant for them. Um, This is especially important for Romans because it can read kind of like a timeless theological treatise, like a systematic theology. Uh, But we can't forget that it's a real letter to a real people in a real situation that Paul is trying to address specifically. Um, So we can miss the truth sometimes we bypass them and just try and go straight to us. So we're going to think about that as we study it. This doesn't take away from the fact, though, that this letter is God's word also for the universal church throughout all time. Uh, It's scripture, and Paul knows that. Uh, Probably this one is the clearest one where he's showing how he knows that by making it kind of a timeless theological treatise. But it is found in your mailbox from Jesus, too. It's kind of like God CC'd you on the email to them uh, saying, hey, this is for you, too. Uh, It's got your name on it as well. 
So uh, let me ask you this before we look at the content of this letter. Uh, Have you ever wanted God to speak to you? Have you ever longed for that kind of engagement and clarity from him? Have you ever um, uh, wanted to hear from Jesus himself? Today, um, you can, actually. Jesus intended for the Roman church to hear from him, and he intended for Hope Chapel and our people to hear from him, and this letter is exactly how he enables that to happen. This is his living and active word for us, and this is where we come when we want to hear his voice. So that's uh, number two, the, the occasion of the letter is Paul encouraging the Roman church uh, to understand their stake in Jesus and in one another, um, and in writing scripture for all the church at the same time. And it's kind of a, the minor occasion, I would say, the minor occasion, because there's a much bigger occasion that we're about to look at, uh, the prescript of this letter, uh, something big that happened that precipitated it. So let's go to point three now, the message of the letter. Um, what is Jesus and all his authority wanting to tell you in this letter via Paul? So look at uh, verse one again. Um, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So let me, let me pause before we go on here. Uh, this starts the prescript. A, a typical Greek letter would have a prescript, which is one line introducing the sender, the recipient, the occasion, and a greeting. And Paul's prescript here in Romans is the longest prescript, uh, not only in all of Paul's letters, but actually it's the longest prescript of any ancient Greek letter that we know of. The reason being, uh, Paul, or Jesus through Paul, is, is laying out the greater occasion for the writing uh, for your letter, which he calls the gospel of God. Uh, God's gospel is what, it, is what that means. Uh, gospel is a word that Paul and Jesus used a ton. Um, it means news, uh, particularly news that is good. And there are instances in the Old Testament and in ancient Greece when someone would win a battle and they would send a messenger uh, to run with what they call the, a gospel. Uh, good news to deliver to the king and to the nation saying, we won. Uh, the Roman calendar, when Augustus Caesar was born, had, had the inscription, the birthday of the god Augustus, uh, they considered their Caesar to God, um, the beginning of the gospel, the good news for the world. So the good news was Augustus being born for them, the benefits that the Roman world would have at such an emperor. But in your letter, um, Rome doesn't have a gospel for you. Uh, Caesar doesn't have a gospel for you. Some soldier isn't running to you with the gospel. Uh, Paul doesn't even have a gospel for you. God has a gospel. God has news to deliver to you. That means what's coming in your letter is not going to merely be some advice for you. It's not going to be self-help. It's not going to be counseling or how to better work through your family history. Uh, This letter is going to contain news from God. It has implications for all those other things, but it's mainly news. So what is, what is this news? Look at, uh, look at verse 2. Uh, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning God's Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be Son of God in power according to the whole spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then skip down to verse 16, where he talks about the gospel as well. Uh, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now this, this sermon is really hard for me. There's a lot of loaded words here that we're going to dive into a ton in the coming weeks. But uh, what is this news, broad strokes, uh, without getting into all the details? The first thing we see is that this news is a person. Uh, verse 1, uh, he says, Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand, concerning God's Son. And then he has some prepositional phrases. Who was descended from David, rose from the dead? Jesus Christ our Lord. Through whom, etc., etc. So do you notice the main subject of the gospel here is not mainly an event, but actually a person that has shown up. Paul describes God's gospel first as God's son. Like Caesar was Rome's gospel, Jesus is God's gospel for us. So that's the first thing, God's gospel is a person. Um, second, uh, God's gospel is that person's victory. Verse 4, uh, who was declared to be son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Now when it says uh, declared to be the son of God, we know Jesus from a lot of other passages has been son of God for all eternity, eternally begotten of the Father. So this is not saying that he gave up being God's son and then got it back. Uh, what it is saying is that through Jesus' defeat of death and through Jesus' resurrection, Jesus has won some sort of a victory. He has ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of the Father. All authority on earth has been given to him. God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So declared Son of God means that Jesus has won this victory, won the spoils of that victory, obtained this special role of authority, the Lord of all creation. And God has set him up as such. There's so much more to say about this that may raise more questions than answered. Um, and we're going to say those things, but not today. Just know that for now, the gospel is a person and this person's victory. And third, uh, God's gospel is the implications of that victory for us. Verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So God's gospel in this letter of yours is the power of God for your salvation. You might ask, salvation from what, uh, Jesus? Uh, well, we're going to spend the next five weeks on that question, salvation from what? Short list of things, short summary, uh, salvation from uh, being eternally stuck in Satan's kingdom, including slavery to evil, to your own sin, uh, your lack of conformity to God and his ways, the devastating effects of that sin in your life, spiritual deadness, the judgment of God already manifesting in this world, and the eternal judgment to come. In other words, you're saved from the real beginnings of hell in your life right now and eternal hell to come. Also, you're not only saved from that, but you're saved to something, uh, according to Romans, uh, to Jesus' kingdom is what you're saved to, meaning freedom from all that slavery for the first time, a rebirth of your whole being, spiritual aliveness for the first time, a full acceptance by God, our adoption by him who becomes our father. We are saved to a new family, a new community, saved to an ability to change, and a full assurance of an eternity of shalom with Jesus himself. You're saved to a real taste of heaven in this life and real heaven to come. The 
power of God for salvation. So much more to say about that, uh, and we will, but you might be asking, okay, that sounds great, but how do, I actually, how do we actually get that? Uh, how does that apply to me? Verse 17, for it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith. And this is the huge, the, probably the biggest part of this good news, our, our access to this salvation, which we're going to talk about at length, is what makes Christianity distinct from all other, other religions, is that the righteousness of God, or being right with God, being reconciled to God, is revealed from God to sinners, not, not from us to him, but from God to us, only through this little thing called faith. Now, faith is our access point. Uh, and it's not what any sinful human, I think, would dream up. It's not uh, your assent to an, a religious doctrine, mainly. It's not an intellectual belief in God. It's not calling yourself a Christian. It's not going to church more. All those things could be an implication of faith. But true faith, we will see, is a collapsing of yourself onto the person of God's gospel. It's trusting in this person and this person's victory. It's a surrender of your whole self to this person, laying ourselves down at the mercy of Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel is a ceasing from lying on yourself. Uh, faith is a ceasing of relying on yourself. And ceasing from your trying to do more to save yourself and to rely on Jesus to save you instead. It's collapsing onto Jesus. And the crazy part is, uh, as we're going to see, this faith is also a gift from God to us. Something that he works in us. And when Paul says, from faith, for faith, what he means is that the Jews of the Old Testament were saved this way, as this Habakkuk quote uh, mentions, and Paul will point to Abraham and many others. And also, we in the New Testament are, are saved this way, made right by God, made right with God through our faith in, in, uh, in God. So God's gospel is a person, a person's victory, and the implications of that victory for us. So uh, to bring all this home, um, imagine your letter now is not in your mailbox, but it's being delivered to you by a messenger who's running to you in the middle, from the middle of the battlefield. And he holds a, a scroll, God's gospel, good news from God himself, and he's ecstatic. He's yelling, God did it. He won. God's son, the king, rose from the dead. All authority is his. He wants you in his kingdom right now. And as you start to take this in, and you open the letter he gives you, you begin to realize the implications, potential implications of this message for you. Because the messenger has found you on the far, far opposite side of the battlefield from God. You're in a concentration camp. You are a slave to God's enemy, to Satan and evil. Your chains are far too thick for you to break. You're malnourished, you're confused, you're all alone. The gas chamber awaits you tomorrow and you already smell it. You see the fumes from others who have gone before you. You see their bodies. And worst of all, you can't live with the fact that you yourself defected to this side. You carry the guilt and shame of all that. That's where the messenger finds you with this good news. As we go through Romans, Paul's going to spend a significant amount of time describing how bad Satan's kingdom really is. But as you sit there, the messenger... Uh, begins to describe for you the kingdom that's awaiting you on the other side. Many things you haven't dreamed of were possible. These chains breaking, you walking free in the fresh air, your defection and evil deeds forgiven in total by the true king, your shame taken away, 
You're being welcomed by God and his people with overwhelming love. You being adopted into a new family, not alone anymore. The joy of a new life. And you're eating solid food again at a feast with God's son as host to the table. That's also what Romans is going to spend a lot of time describing for us is God's kingdom. And you hear all this in your concentration camp with your chains and you say, well, I want to go. And this might be some good news for someone else because I can't seem to leave this place. What's, going to take, what's it going to take for me, messenger, to get there? The real me to get there. And at this point, God's messenger moves aside and God's son himself appears in your concentration camp. He says, only this, drop your chains into my hands. Let me break them and let me carry you out of this place. I'm the only one who can do it. And at this point you say, I don't have the strength to lift them up to you. And he bends down and puts his hands under your chains and says, actually, I came to give you that too. This is the gospel of God. This is what your letter contains, the power of God for your salvation. This gospel is the foundation of our community of the church. It has so much to say for our stake in Jesus and in each other. So my challenge for you is to open this letter this week. Open Romans. And try to receive the news in it with the same utter abandon and openness of heart as if God himself was speaking it to you. Because he is through Jesus. Through Jesus' sent one. And then ponder the news it contains. Start to ponder it concerning God's son and his resurrection. And I want you to begin to wonder freshly this week what that news, this letter, really means for you. The righteousness of God revealed for a sinner like you. I think uh, we're going to find this year that most of the problems you face are the result of a lack of belief in the contents of this letter. The lack of belief in this news and its implications for you. You think you know it, but we really don't know it yet. Not in your bones. But by God's grace, we will. And I want to end uh, with the words of Martin Luther. Martin Luther says, This epistle is in truth uh, the purest gospel. I mean the purest expression of it. It would be quite proper for a Christian not only uh, to know it by heart, word for word, but also to study it daily. For it, it is the soul's daily bread. It can never be read or meditated too much and too well. The more thoroughly it is treated, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. That's the gospel for us. Amen.